Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so today we're continuing our message series in 1 Thessalonians. And as I said last week, and as Sean said when he kicked off this message series, this letter was written to encourage a young church plant. It was a church plant that Paul had planted. He didn't get to spend much time there. And the church, when he wrote this letter, was just six, eight, 12 months old. It was a very young church. And so he's writing this letter for two purposes. The first reason why he's writing this letter is to encourage the church. But then the second reason why he writes this letter is to address some concerns and questions. He wants to build them up, but also address some issues that are going on and answer some of the questions that they had sent with Timothy. Now last week, we covered the concerns. The concerns were sexual immorality within the church and also the daily life of Christians. What are Christians supposed to be doing on a daily basis? Uh, basis with their life? How are they supposed to be living? And what are we supposed to do with this influx of sexual immorality that's flooding the church? Very relevant for us today as we talked about last week. But then when we get into the second half of chapter four around verse 13, he starts addressing some of the questions that the church had sent with Timothy. Questions like, when will Jesus return? He came once, we know he's coming again. There is a second coming. When is that gonna happen? And more importantly, my loved ones who were Christians that have passed, they're now gone, they're dead, have they missed out on something since they didn't see Christ's second coming? So there is a sense of fear and worry about the afterlife. It's rooted in my loved ones, have they missed out on something? But the way he addresses the question also seems to indicate that there's, this also, there's also this fear going on about what is coming next. Not just have they missed it, but what is going to happen? What is the order? When is it going to happen? Because there's a level of persecution. There's a level of fear of death that is present in this culture. And it's important for us to study this because that same fear resides inside of us today. And just being candid with you, um, most of you know uh, about, I guess it was a month ago now, a little over a month ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And when we first got that news, I started thinking that when I was teaching through Isaiah and Matthew and Revelation, I, I remember this sense of boldness that I had when I was preaching of telling you, you don't have anything to fear when it comes to death. When it comes knocking on your door, you don't have anything to fear. I remember that sense of courage and then it came to my door and I felt like a fraud because I was immediately afraid. Not because of what was gonna happen to her next if the Lord took her, but what I was afraid of was being alone having to live without her, and having her miss on some of the most amazing times that I knew would be coming for my family. And so I say that because all of that stuff is real in this church and it's real in this letter. The idea 
that every person in this room has an expiration date and you don't know when it is. And it doesn't just affect you. You can come to the place where you say, I'm ready to meet Christ. I feel like I'm there. If the Lord says this afternoon, hey, time's up. Man, there is no greater place in the presence of the Lord. I can't wait to meet him face to face, but I can't forget what it will do to those who I love. Yes, we will see each other once again, and that's the encouragement Paul brings to the table, but you can't avoid this very real fear that if that happens, it affects the people who are closest to you. And so I say that because all of that emotion is wrapped up in this letter. It is addressing the very real fear that death is coming for all of us. That for some of you, it's already started because you've been diagnosed with a disease and doctors are like, I, I don't have an answer for that. I don't, we don't have any way to fix this. And so your expiration date, it's there. You don't have it yet, but you know it, the sense is that it's closer than somebody who hasn't gotten a diagnosis. Like all of that, it's wrapped up in this letter. The reality that what is coming next is addressed in here. It's this thing that kind of follow us, follows us and haunts us. And Paul is telling the church that you don't have to live with it haunting you anymore. No matter what circumstances are in your life right now, for you or for your loved ones, death is not something that you have to fear anymore. Now I'm not saying it's not something that you can't mourn over or be concerned for. What I'm saying is that there is no room in the life of a Christian for fear. You hear me? Fear is cast out because that's what perfect love does. So all of that, the emotions, my, my sense of, of dread, of feeling like, man, I, I, I say this stuff when I preach the word of God, but when it hits my home, I, I don't feel that same way. Well, I can tell you right now, after going through this season and my wife being healed, I'm now at the place where I feel this boldness to tell you once again, you don't have to fear death. But that's the way it is, isn't it? That the closer it gets, the more you have to lean on faith, and the farther it feels away, the more you kind of feel like I can lean on my own strength. That's exactly how it is, and Paul addresses all of that, and the way he does it is by very clearly telling us in explicit directions, here's the order of events that will happen next. And you can be comforted by those details. And this is what's fascinating, because when we start talking about what's next, we start talking about the second coming, we as Christians can get really argumentative. We start debating timelines and arguing about, about when and, and where and how, and we lose the fact that when Paul was asked that question, he answered very directly, gave very specific details, and that was meant to encourage us. It's almost like the enemy likes us arguing with one another because it robs us of being able to see the clear directions that God has given us in his word about what will happen and the comfort that it can bring. So that's what I wanna to do today. I wanna to clearly show you from scripture what Paul is using to bring encouragement to the church about the issue of death and what's coming next at the second coming of Christ and how that can bring encouragement to you today. Amen? Let's get into it. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter four. We're going to start in verse 13. 
So Paul says to the church, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Let's pause there. So Paul starts in this section of the letter, letting the church know he doesn't want them to grieve about those who are asleep. Now, what is he talking about? There is a long tradition in the Bible, but not just in the Bible, culturally in Greek culture and Roman culture, ancient Hebrew culture, lots of different cultures. It's common to refer to someone who has died as someone who is asleep. You see this in 1 Kings 2.10, Luke 8.52, 1 Corinthians 15.16. There's a long tradition in God's family, but also other families in other cultures around the world, that when we speak about people who have died, we talk about them going down into sleep. All right, so that, what he's talking about here when he says those who have gone asleep, he's talking about those who have died. And he uses that phrase, those who've gone to sleep, for two reasons. One, because it was a common idiom that everyone understood at the time. When people talked about dying, they often said he's gone to sleep, or he's gone down to rest, or he's gone to sleep with his fathers. He's been laid down with his ancestors. That, that idiom is common and Paul's using it as a reference point because that's the way they talked. But the second reason why he uses that is because that idiom is very powerful for a Christian. And the reason why it's so powerful is because we believe in the resurrection. And so what we're talking about here is the belief that yes, you will die, but you will one day be raised back up to new life. You will, it, it, it's your death, because you'll be raised up, is more like sleeping than it is the world calls dying, because it isn't the end. There's something that comes after you expire. So this is the reason why Paul is using this language, because he wants you to know that death is not the end, and this is the first way that he's bringing comfort to the church. For those in the church who are concerned about their loved ones that they've lost and they miss, he's telling them, you're gonna see them again. And I believe that when we all raise to new life, we will recognize one another. We will remember certain things, and you will know who people are. We will be gloriously changed, and we'll get to that in a second. But Paul is bringing encouragement that you will see these people once again. What's the value of seeing them again if they don't recognize you and you don't know them? There was a point after the resurrection where all the disciples recognized Jesus. And so the comfort that he's bringing to them is that when you think of death, you don't think about it like the rest of the world does, with no hope. There is hope the way we think about it, because of how the Bible's taught us. Now there's something I have to address here. There is a, uh, a belief that has arisen over the history of the church that it is often referred to as soul sleep. And so what this is, is it the, it's the belief system that when you're reading scripture and Paul says that when someone dies, they are asleep, that's how you're supposed to think about them, that what is happening is that the moment you die, your body goes into this unconscious state 
and you remain there until the resurrection, okay? That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that when you die, you just go into this holding pattern in your body and you just stay there in the ground until he returns. This is what the Bible teaches. The moment you die, your spirit is separated from your body. Your body stays here on earth. It's buried, cremated, whatever happens to your body, your loved ones, whatever they do with it. Your body stays here on earth and your spirit faces judgment. We're told that in Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed unto a man to die once and then face judgment. So the moment you die, your spirit and your body separate, your body stays here on earth, your spirit faces judgment, and believers, those who have trusted Christ, enter into the presence of the Lord and they are immediately with Jesus. So your loved ones who have passed away, and we're believers, they are right now with Jesus. How do we know that? 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, and Philippians 1, 23, Paul tells us that. If you are not a believer, and you face that first immediate judgment, your spirit, your body's still here on earth, your spirit then goes to a, a, a temporary hell that's referred to in the New Testament as Hades or Gehenna, I call it temporary because we're told in Revelation that at some point death and this Haiti is gonna be swallowed up and every th- everyone in there is gonna be cast into this other permanent place of torment called the lake of fire. But if you are a non-believer and you die, the moment you die, your body is placed here on the ground, your body stays here on earth and your spirit faces judgment and you are placed in hell. Luke 16, 23, Matthew 5, 22, Revelation 1, 18, Revelation 20, 13 through 14. All these are in my notes if you wanna go back and look at them if I said all of that too fast. Paul's message to the church is that you don't have to worry about your loved ones because if they put their faith in Christ, they are immediately right now with Jesus. But that's not the end of the comfort. Because not only are they right now in the presence of Jesus, but when Jesus returns to earth, they will all, their spirits will follow Jesus and come back with him. That's good news. This is what he's saying. He said, even so those, Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the spirits of those who have died, all of their spirits, they're fought. when Jesus returns for a second coming, all of those spirits are coming with him. And not only are they coming with him, but when they arrive, they're gonna get a new body. Let's get into that. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now, most commentators would say that that is probably referring to either Paul having direct revelation from the Spirit telling him this, or it's a reference to something that Jesus taught in the Gospels or something clearly that Jesus taught the disciples that maybe wasn't specifically recorded. But whatever this is, Paul is saying, I'm not just coming up with this. I'm not pulling it out of thin air. This we declare to you by a word from the Lord. God is telling you this. That we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. So everybody who's still alive when Jesus returns for the second coming will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
So your loved ones that you're worried about, they're not missing out on everything. In fact, they're first in line to get their new bodies. We will, we will follow them. They, the dead in Christ, will rise first. For the Lord himself, here's the order of events, verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Because from that point forward, we will never be out of his presence. From that, the moment that happens, we'll never be separated from him ever again. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right. So how does Paul encourage the church? By, not by being confusing, saying, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen, but it's going to be glorious. Can we all agree on that? No. He says, let me tell you exactly what's going to happen so you can be encouraged about what's coming your way. So let's go down the order of events. This is what Jesus tells Paul by word of the Lord to declare to the church to comfort them about death. First thing that will happen is Jesus will descend from heaven, he will crack the sky, he will descend from heaven with a trumpet blast. Okay? Now why does that sound familiar? Because Jesus talked about this in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. But where else have we heard trumpet blasts? That's right, there's seven of them in the book of Revelation. There's seals, and then there's trumpets, and then there's bowls of wrath. I am convinced that when Jesus and Paul are referencing a trumpet blast, and that's the inauguration of Jesus returning, I think it's at the seventh trumpet blast. So seals, and we went through Revelation, if you wanna go back and listen to all that, seals are things that are being released during the entire church history period, and then when things get serious, and it's time for the Lord to start returning, then there's these trumpet blast judgments over the earth. And the last trumpet inaugurates the sky splitting and the return of our king. All right, so we're told the first thing that happens at his return is there's going to be this trumpet blast, the voice of an archangel. Jesus is going to show it with a cry of command. And we're told that those disembodied spirits, I told you, believers, when they die, their bodies are here on earth, but their spirits are with the Lord. So when the, when the trumpet blasts and the sky splits, Jesus comes back and all of those disembodied spirits with Jesus are coming back with him. All right? That's the second thing we're told. At that moment, when he returns with those disembodied spirits, the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who are dead, their dead bodies, they will rise up out of the grave, just like Jesus did on the third day. They will rise up out of the grave, their bodies will ascend into heaven, and their bodies and their spirits will be reunited and transformed they will receive their glorified body. Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 51 through 53, that at that moment, the perishable will put on imperishable. We will be changed. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. I've got a couple guesses. This isn't scripture. It's just my perspective. 
But I think that the body that we will get will look most like it was when Adam and Eve were in the garden before sin. There is a point at which your body, because of sin and age and death coming for you, that it starts breaking down. And you know what I'm talking about. If you're in your your 20s, you're like, what is this thing you're speaking? I don't, no, I feel good. I'm peak, I'm good. 25, you're like, I woke up a little, I don't know what this was. Like, the time you start hitting your 30s, it's like, I woke up and I pulled a muscle in my back while I was sleeping. (laughs) By your 40s, you're just going to get some coffee in the kitchen and you pull a muscle while you're going to get, the breakdown of your body, I think personally, not scripture, I think it's connected to the fall. And so what does our glorified bodies look like? I think it's probably somewhere right there in that 20 to 25 year old range, right before things start going downhill. Some of you are like, I knew I, I knew I came here to this church for a reason. Praise God, I can get behind that. I, I don't know, I, I think, I think that's what our glorified bodies will be like, something right around there. But it will be a physical form, just like Jesus when he rose from the dead. Okay, you gotta get out of your mind. I don't know who sold you on this, but you gotta get out of your mind that eternity is you gonna be floating around in a spirit form or, or, or we're just gonna be like angels and we're kind of like you know playing our little trumpets and laying on cloud. No, that's not what the Bible teaches is e- the eternal state. If it is, there's no point of a resurrection. You don't need a resurrection if you're just gonna spend the rest of your body, uh, the rest of your life in a spirit body. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible Bible teaches that Jesus, when he comes back, splits the sky with the trumpets, the spirits of these dead saints are coming back with him, and the first thing that's gonna happen is their dead bodies are gonna raise from the dead, they're gonna meet the Lord in the air, their spirits and their bodies are gonna reunited, and they're gonna be transformed and they're gonna receive a glorified body. That's good stuff, amen? But it doesn't end there, because the next thing that happens is alive believers, Christians, who are on the earth when the second coming happens, when Jesus returns, we will then be caught up. We will, I don't know if we're going to float, maybe like the ascension of Jesus, or just going to be like that. And everybody's like, what happened? This dude was right here, and now he's gone. I think it's probably very visible, so all the world can see what's going on. But we're gonna be caught up in the air and at that same moment, we who still have our spirits and our bodies, our physical bodies together, we're gonna be caught up with the Lord also and we're gonna be transformed and receive our glorified bodies. Right, let's go. I'm here for that, that's exciting. This is why Paul is giving this encouraging letter because death seems so terrible if death is the final thing. If it's death and a period, then we can all be filled with sorrow. But if the end is us going to sleep and then rising again once more and receiving a new completely glorified body to spend all eternity in on a new heaven that's been joined with a new earth, then you're talking about enjoying a sunrise and a sunset like you've never experienced in your life. And you're experiencing the world the entire globe being under the rule and reign of one righteous king, Jesus. Not, not, not these, these lesser humans who think they're God, who tell you whatever you want to hear just so you'll vote for them. No, we're talking about the supremacy of Jesus across the entire globe and his church ruling and reigning with him in glorified bodies. Now, 
I said at the beginning of this that there's some debate um, uh, because this event that I just described is often referred to as the rapture. It comes from a Latin word of just being caught up. And the debate is centered around when this event will happen. Matthew 24 talks about a period of great tribulation that's gonna happen on the earth around the time of this event, the second coming of Jesus. Now some of you, uh, you, you hold a view that this event that I just described, Jesus coming back, the resurrection of the saints, the being caught up, getting a whole glorified body, that that is gonna happen at the very beginning or before the period of great tribulation. So Jesus is gonna come back all of us are going to be caught up and then Jesus is going to take all of us back up to heaven and a period of seven years of tribulation is going to happen on the earth and then he will come back a third time although you probably wouldn't describe it like a third time maybe you describe it like the first time was a secret event it wasn't actually his second coming it was a secret being caught up with him and then the second coming is at the end however you would describe it you would describe it as he's going to do this thing and a moment that happens when we're all caught up with him in the air we're going back up to heaven, okay? That's the first view. The second view is that that event, the second coming, happens at the end of the seven year of tribulation, or however long the tribulation is going to last, and the moment that that happens, so we're all caught up in the air with Jesus, what happens next? Then we follow him as a great parade around the globe as he marches to Jerusalem to finally take on the Antichrist and Satan and all of his demons and to crush them in one final blow with just a word from his own voice. All right, now I lean more towards the second one. I haven't always, when I was a Christian, uh, when I first got saved, um, most of the books that I read, most of the teaching that I had were centered around the, the, the first idea that we would, then we would go back to heaven. Um, but there's a, there's a couple reasons why I lean towards the second one. I won't go into all of those. I think one of them uh, will be helpful for today because it's actually referenced here. This is one of the reasons why I would believe that we don't actually go back to heaven and then there's a seven year tribulation. This is actually happens, the whole tribulation happens and at the very end, that's when he comes back to judge the earth. Um, so we would be caught up in, in, in the sky with the Lord and we would return with him. We'd follow him on the way to Jerusalem. And as he's going to Jerusalem, the angels of the book of Revelation are pouring out bowls of wrath on the earth to judge the earth as we are in the sky following him back to Jerusalem, the earth is being judged by these bowls being poured out on the, on the earth. All right, so we're spared. The wrath of God isn't for us. We're spared from that, but we're, we've got a very unique view looking down, following our king to the final judgment, because at that point, the whole earth is corrupt and everyone serves the dragon. Now, the reason why I would say that, just lots of reasons, but one I'll focus in right now would be verse 17. So in verse 17, we're told that when we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That word meet is a Greek word, apentesis. Now, the reason why that's important is because that word apentesis is only used three times in the New Testament. It's used here and it's used two other times. And the other two times are Matthew 25, six and Acts 20, 18. And both of those times, that word meet describes a group of people in a city going out from that city to meet a coming dignitary or important person. And once they meet that person, they turn and they come back into the town with that person leading and they follow that person as an entourage. This happens with Paul, when he goes on one of his missionary journeys. We're told that the group, uh, they, they came out to meet him, came out to Apentesis, they came out to meet him, and when they met him, they turned around and they led him into the city. 
Just one reason why I think that the picture that Paul is trying to paint here is that at the, when, when Jesus comes and we meet him in the air, the purpose of meeting him in the air is to be that delegation of leading him into or, or following him uh, as he parades himself in. It's very similar to the picture that we get of him riding in on the donkey the first time, except this time it's not a donkey. It's a white horse with a sword in his mouth and a tattoo on his thigh. And we're following him in as he judges the nations. So. Wherever you fall in the order of events, it's not a big deal. It's not important. You, don't, you can worship here and disagree with me. That's fine. It's not a big deal. Um, the order of events is not as important as believing that the events will, will transpire. All right, so the order isn't as important as believing that it will happen. And the reason why that's important is because Paul is using this event that if we believe will happen, will remove all fear of death for us because we have this wonderful hope that we're going to see each other again, that we're gonna see our loved ones again. Now let's get in First Thessalonians 5 because he's, he's going to answer what is the most natural next question. Well, that seems like a pretty good deal. When's it gonna happen? When, right? That's the next natural question. So he answers that. Let's go to verse one in chapter five. It says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But, You are not in darkness. Brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Mm, That's interesting. It will be that that day, his second coming, will be like a thief in the night, but not for Christians. It will only be like a thief in the night for non-believers. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. What's coming for the world isn't coming for you because you are not children of the night. You aren't sleeping, it won't, be, it won't catch you unaware. You're aware, you're looking, you're waiting, you're awake, you know it's coming. So that wrath isn't coming for you. What's coming for you? Salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And then he's, now he's using the word asleep in a different way. He's talking about those who have fallen asleep. That's the reason why Paul is so difficult to read sometimes, because he uses the same word in these different ways. He's talking about, well, we're not ones who are asleep, but then he talks about those who are asleep. Well, it's because the first word he's using to illustrate people who are non-believers, who are gonna be caught unaware. But then the next thing, but but who died, Christ Jesus, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're alive or dead, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. 
All right, so after speaking on Christ's return, Paul answers the next logical question that we would have, when is this gonna happen? The rapture, the second coming, he calls it the day of the Lord here. As many prophets in the Old Testament, Zechariah called it the day of the Lord, Isaiah called it the day of the Lord, Joel called it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the rapture, the second coming, the arrival of Jesus, all the same event. And Paul is saying, you wanna know when it is? And I'm telling you, you can't. Can't know when it is. Because not even the angels know. Not even Jesus knows, we're told in Matthew 24, 36. Only the Father knows but it is enough for us to know that he does know. See, the Father has a calendar, and there is a day that's circled in red, and that is the day his son is coming back, and there's nothing you can do to change it. You can't speed it up, you can't, you can't make it last longer, you can't push it out, it's set in stone. The Father has already decided the day, and when he tells the son now, the son will obey, and the son will return and he will bring the spirits of the dead saints with them and resurrect them and we will all be raised up and given new bodies as well. So he says you can't know the day, nobody knows the day, but you can know what the season is. It's not for us to know the day, but it is for us to know the season. We are supposed to discern. Jesus says, watch the fig tree. You see when it starts sprouting leaves and you know that that the moment that happens it's gonna start producing fruit. If you are so keen in understanding how agriculture works with, with trees and fruit, then you should be smart enough to be able to discern the season that we are living in today and know when the second coming is coming. So what are those things we're supposed to be looking for? What are the the indications. Around here we know that it's fall because the weather starts dropping. You, you wake up and it's real cold and all of a sudden the time shifts and it's like, okay, it's super dark at like 5.30 in, in the evening. All right, so I, I, I know that things are starting to happen. I can watch the signs. What are the signs out in the world that Jesus is coming back? Well, we're told in Matthew 24, 37 that it's gonna look very much like the days of Noah. When people are just going out, going to parties, eating, drinking, living their lives, giving no thought for accountability or the idea that they will have to be held accountable to a holy God. They're gonna be going and giving themselves in marriage. They're gonna be saying things like peace and security. Things are great. Look what we have built for ourselves and in an instant, everything will change. Kind of like what's going on in Israel right now. Many of our brothers and sisters who live in that country, missionaries, they went to bed one night, everything was fine, and the next morning they woke up and they were under terrorist attack. In an instant, Paul says, like labor pains or like a thief in the night. So how is Jesus gonna return? Paul says it will be like a thief in the night. Now why is that phrase used by Paul, like a thief in the night? Why is his second coming like a thief in the night? It's because a burglar doesn't tell you when he's gonna break in. He doesn't send you an email saying, hey, tonight, I'm gonna give it a shot. (laughs) There's no advanced warning, it just happens. And what he's saying here is that same unexpectedness is gonna mark his return. 
The idea that the world will not be expecting what's coming their way because they have rejected the message of the real king. And I say unexpectedness because he will only arrive as a thief in the night for non-believers. See, Christians, they aren't asleep. They're not drunk. They don't live in darkness unaware. They're awake, they're alert, they're watching, and they're expecting his return. They aren't caught off guard and they're not going to suffer the wrath that's coming because they have experienced his salvation. See, that's the difference. There's two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are awake and there are people who are asleep. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. There is no in-between. There are those who follow the lamb and there are those who follow the dragon. I don't follow the dragon, I follow myself. Well, it's just another face it's, it's, it's pretty lipstick on following the dragon. It's all following the dragon. There's only two ways. And what Paul is saying here is that the evil in the world that non-believers are caught up in is blinding them. It's making them, uh, if, if you were gonna use analogy, it's putting them to sleep, it's making them drunk, it's making them blind, and when Jesus returns, it's gonna be a surprise to them. It'll be like someone breaking into your house at night that you didn't expect. So this is in verse 11, Paul uses all of this. Why? To encourage the church. Therefore, encourage one another with this. He's saying motivate and inspire each other that are awake. He's saying in this crazy world where nothing seems to make sense, Let the word of God about what is coming next bring you comfort that can't come from anywhere else. That's the beauty. This is what Paul is saying. When you watch the news and these people who have no hope are telling you, you need to be afraid, you can laugh and turn it off because you not only don't have to be afraid, you know what's going to come next. When you watch the nation's rage, you know what's happening. They're raging because our king is making his enemies a footstool. War is happening in a realm you can't see. And sometimes it bleeds over into a realm that you can see. That's what's going on. And so this sense of fear and dread that is permeating our culture, it shouldn't be touching us. Why? Because Paul has given us from the word of God explicit directions about what's coming next. And none of it you lose. You hear me? None of it you lose. So, In the midst of all of this uncertainty, it has a way, the word of God, has a way of releasing the panic and anxiety off of us. Hear me, because this is the way, this is the posture you're supposed to be living under. You're not supposed to be living under anxiety and fear and, and worry around every corner. You're supposed to be living in a different way because you know what's coming next. So, if the word of God has its full transformation, transformating work inside of you, 
And you are now, because you look at this and you're like, yeah, man, like, <laughs> this is pretty good. So the, let the nations rage. They got no play. The king's coming back. And when he does, like, think about this. There's not a weapon on planet Earth that we have created that's going to stop Jesus from raising the dead. Think about that. There's no technology that, that the dragon is going to use to stop what Jesus has already declared is going to happen. Mm, that gives you some comfort in your belly, doesn't it? it puts a steel in your spine. Like, I, man, what's, what could possibly happen? Think of the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. I, would, would, I could lose my life, or I could lose my loved one, I could lose my loved one. And, and Paul says, yeah, but, but then they're just going to sleep, and then you'll see him again. There'll be a little bit of a, a period of suffering or, or longing or, or, or being sad or that you won't have them, but then you get them again. You get them back again. They come back to life in a new transformed body. So all of that fear and anxiety starts like, well, okay, I mean, if I believe this, and this panic, this uncertainty starts going away. So, so what do I do if I have no panic and uncertainty? What am I gonna do to fill my time? If you remove the one thing that most of my life is about, being afraid or panic that I'm not gonna show up on time or I'm not gonna have the right thing, or things are gonna happen to me outside of my own control. If I remove all of that, then what do I do with all of my time? Paul says you get busy doing the real work. Go to verse 12. What do you do? What does a church do? What does God's people do if they don't fill their time with panic and anxiety and fear? Verse 12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and over you and in the Lord admonish you. To esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. I've used that verse so many times. People are like, I just don't know what God's will for my life is. I feel lost. I'm 22 and I just don't know what God, here's God's will, it's black and white, ready? Give thanks in all circumstances, that is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's God's will for your life? To give thanks in all circumstances. Oh, oh it just, it releases so much fear and anxiety. Yeah, it's designed to, so that you don't spend your time focusing on the fear and anxiety, you spend your time giving thanks. Here's what else you can be doing, not quenching the spirit. Here's something else, stop despising prophecy. Here's something else, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Because he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. It's interesting, don't make copies of it so everyone can read it for themselves, but get everyone together and read it out loud. 
the first and primary way that God's word was, de- was designed to be uh, um, delivered to God's people was you were supposed to hear it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All right, so w- what do we do? If we don't spend all of our time in panic and uncertainty, what do we do? We fill our time with real work. Here's the list of real work. Respect each other. Here's the real work. Esteem each other in love and honor. Work on keeping peace in his family. Spread it out into the world. Stop being idle. Quit sitting on your hands and pretending like you're doing God a favor by not doing anything with the giftings that he's given you. Encourage and help the weak. Be patient with them. Stop seeking revenge and making plots to get even. Return good to all. Rejoice. Pray. Thanks. Give thanks. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecy. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from what is evil. What is the bottom line? The word of God that tells us that we know what's coming can remove all the fear and anxiety in our life and what is replaced in that emptiness is the true real work of God. There is so much work to be done. Now this is the point where you're, I I can feel it because I've talked to so many believers over the years. They focus their entire Christian walk on overcoming that one big sin. Man, I just can't shake drinking. I'm a drunk. God saved me and every time I try to get over, I go back to it. It's that that one thing I just can't, I can't get over. I have this addictive personality. For me, it's gossip. Or for, for, the, for, for me, it, it's, it's stealing. I can't stop taking things out of my I can't stop coveting. I'm unhappy with my own life. And every time I start looking out everywhere, it doesn't matter who it is. I want what they have. I don't like my life. I don't like what God has blessed me with. I want what other people have. I covet everything. And so we make our entire Christian walk about overcoming this one thing. Because the enemy's got you focused on this one thing. That's it. And then by God's grace, he sets you free. And you're like, oh, finally, I'm free. And you look around and it's like, well, I don't know what to do with all my time now. That thing's gone. It's dead. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to get all of my attention to. Or the other side of that, like there's this genuine sense of like, I, I don't know what's next. Or this other side of like, like um, there really is nothing next. Man, I've been walking with the Lord for 40 years and he's pretty much, I'm, I've arrived. I'm here. I'm I'm done. The best thing I do with my time is just, man, help other people work on their stuff. And so you become this kind of, uh, your, your spiritual gift is just getting in other people's business. You know, hey, uh, a couple things that are off over here, you know? And if anybody dares say anything to you, what are you talking about? No, I'm fine. It's this guy over here we need a little, needs a little attention. So you got these two sides. You're convinced that the only thing your Christian walk has ever been about is about God setting you free from this one sin, and the moment he does, and your, your, your emotions and your temptations, they don't go to that, you don't have no affections for that anymore, he set you free, you're like, oh, I don't know what's next, I don't know what I do, I don't know what to do with my time. Or you, you have this pompous attitude where you're like, man, well, there's really nothing else that God could do. Like, I'm just, I'm here to serve everybody else, and, and I'm, I'm perfect. You wouldn't say it, but really, that's what we're talking about. Here's my challenge to you. This is what Paul would challenge you. If you find yourself being lazy or confused about what's next or having this attitude that I've arrived and there's no more work to do, I want you to pick one thing from this list of real work 
and I want you to practice it for one week. And when you're done, at the end of that week, I want you to pick another thing. And I want you to keep going down that list until you finish the list. And when you finish the list, I want you to start over. If you feel like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with my Christian walk. I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure what God's up to. How about you just for a week practice rejoicing over everything? At the end of that week, see where it leaves you. You're like, okay, well, I guess there is some work to be done. See, the, the enemy wants you so hyper-fixed on sin that you never move into this place where you start enjoying the fruits of what Christ did to save you. If all you're ever doing is focusing in on this one wretched thing, then there's never any time for you to focus your attention on the fruit of prayer. But here's the trick. If you focus on prayer, your affections will turn towards him. And this thing that you've been hyper-focused on, it's gonna take care of itself. He's gonna remove that thing while you're over here looking at him. If you can fix your eyes on him, then all the other things that always seem to have a hold on you, they're just gonna kinda drift away. So this is the encouragement he brings to church. He's coming back and there's a lot of work to do and the work doesn't look like what you think it looks like. Yes, put sin to death. Yes, abstain every evil thing. But also, while you're abstaining every evil thing and hating all the things of this world and, and all, the, all the, the evil that it has to offer, cling to what is good. Don't let everyone think that your reputation and your entire personality is made up of all the things you hate, but no one knows what you love. Go down this laundry list. Stop seeking revenge. For one week, everything that comes your way, choose to return good. Driving down the road, somebody cuts you off. That's all right. <laughs> Try it. You will quickly realize that there is much work to be done. And the work looks nothing like fearing and wringing your hands and, and, and increasing your anxiety over things you can't control in the Middle East or in some country you've never been to before. There is so much work to be done in your own heart, in your own home, and this is what Paul is saying. So this is the end of 1 Thessalonians. Next week we're gonna get into 2 Thessalonians, but let's summarize 1 Thessalonians together. Christ is coming soon, so stop sinning and get to work. That's the book. Your king is on the very edge of returning to come and get you. Stop practicing sin and start practicing holiness. There's a lot of work to do, so let's get to it. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.